Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time, Republic f- ships fired on their own capital, and Zane Carrick's good name was finally cleared. Now, in episode 19, we move through the filler KOTOR comics and find out one of Jir- one of Jiraiel's really, really big secrets. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. Before we go uh, deeper into the story today, some stray thoughts from Vindication. And the comic points to Griff as the red-armored Sith Lord pretended by the Rogue Moon prophecy. And that's obviously true for the reasons above, but there are a couple more connections. Technically, Griff was, to some degree, involved in the deaths of all five Covenant members specifically shown to die by the Vision. He was indirectly involved in the death of Kilanil and Zamar by his actions during Vindication and was directly responsible for the deaths of Ranate, Felm, and Kindadre. While he didn't intend to kill any of them but Rana, and that was... In defense of Zane, he was still involved in his involvement with the Death, not just wearing a suit, adds another wrinkle to the story. So that's it, right? The Rogue Moon prophecy ended with Krinda Dre's death, right? Look, no one wants to keep talking about the Rogue Moon prophecy, but the First Watch Circle did correctly interpret some aspects of the vision. They just fucked up the rest of it really badly. Unfortunately for us, that means the vision wouldn't be fully finished for either another 7 or 12 years from 3963, depending on how you look at it. In episode 14, when describing the Flashpoint arc, we briefly noted that Malik, then known as Squint, wore Zane's red spacesuit after being freed from torture. Later, in 3959, Malik and Revan would both fall to the dark side and invade the Republic, sparking a three-year Jedi civil war and destabilizing the Jedi Order. Darth Malak died in 3956, ending the Jedi Civil War. Under the Seven Years reading, this is the fulfillment of the Rogue Moon Prophecy. However, Darth Malak's death also led to the fracture of the Sith and sparked the Sith Civil War that lasted from 3956 to 3951 BBY. Eventually, the Sith united under the Sith Triumvirate and initiated the first Jedi Purge, which was so successful that the Jedi Order was reduced to as few as eight members by 3951. Under the Twelve-Year reading, the Rogue Moon Prophecy ended ends here that's it no more about the prophecy okay there's probably some more about it (laughs) and i mean i guess technically there probably could be a reading about palpatine because he always wore red so i guess you could do that one too if you wanted to anyway (laughs) so why the hell did it take the republic so long to stop the ventravalis chain firing on the republic Maybe it's just that the comic is written, but it seems like a long time between Karath determining he needs to scuttle the Swiftshire to stop the bombardment and actually doing it, because the chain is still intact when Lucian Dre uses it to kill Hazen. And we don't need reasons to hate Karath. Karath. We've already seen him go out of his way to be, a big, to be an asshole. It's just that the Republic ships firing on Coruscant is a big, big, big deal. And even though we already said Vindication takes place over a few hours, it's just... It should take longer than it than it is is all if you were confused by the number of covenant jedi uh don't worry we don't know either it uh it probably had to be in the 100s high 100s uh it was unlikely to be in the thousands uh but who knows for sure again star wars is 
terrible with economies of scale. And though it's not outright stated, one has to assume that the synth artifacts Hazen recovered in the courtyard moments before Lucian Dre called in the final orbital strike increased the size of the explosions that leveled the Dre estate. They weren't moved from the area and the blasts leveled entire city blocks on the upper level of Coruscant. And it's also implied to be the entire Jedi High Council storeroom of Sith relics. So, you know, a lot. Uh, at one point, Lucene is chasing Zane through the, the palace. Uh, <clears throat> Hazen looks unsatisfied, believing that Carrick will also join his cause. Uh, Hazen then tells Zane that the Jedi also thought that he had a, quote, learning disability, end quote, uh, which hindered his use of the Force, but the Sith gave him ways to compensate. Uh, prior to that statement and during his flashback to 4006 BBY, uh, when Master Arca lists the reasons that Hazen failed to achieve the rank of Knight, the Arcanian says that Hazen lacks focus and his thoughts are too jumbled and imprecise to ever improve in the Force. Uh, from my armchair, it sounds a lot like Hazen suffers from what we call ADHD or something like it, uh, which actively hinders not only his learning, but uh, also his use of the Force, obviously. Uh, many Jedi have commented on Zane's lack of Force potential, and there's certainly a lot of truth to that, uh, but much of it seems to be issues with needing more time or that he has trouble focusing. Uh, recall he unscrewed a an armored panel in the brig of a Republic ship with the force because he had a long enough t time to do it. And Lucian constantly commented on his lack of focus and concentration. Also in a later arc, Zane will uh, make the same comments about having a quote learning disability as well. Um, I don't know if, the, if any of this was intentional by John Jackson Miller, and I don't think it was meant in an offensive way, uh, given how the series has handled other topics relatively well. However, as someone who's dealt with ADHD and its symptoms my entire life but wasn't diagnosed until I was an adult, I was often told that I like focus and that my thoughts and words come out jumbled. Hell, they still do sometimes. You can hear the you can hear this when I go off script and say, uh, a bunch. Um so that uh, resonated a little bit with me, um, though in obvi obviously in a confusing way because Hazen is decidedly the big bad the big bad here. Anyway, the point is that I found uh, something uh, interesting given my own history with ADHD and wanted to briefly discuss it here since the frame occurs in Vindication and this is our podcast, uh, The Old Republic, A Land of Contrasts. <laughs> Absolutely. So, are we going to talk about the Jedi elephant in the room? Yes, of course. Portraying the Jedi Order as a blundering Keystone Cops is par for the course since the prequel trilogy, and it usually makes for some very good stories, but this is a bit much. The Jedi Council, High Council didn't notice, much less sense through the Force, a conservative cabal for, forming within its own midst. They were aware that Grinda Dre was training without supervision and that some Jedi had retained access to the levels of personal wealth needed to finance their own agendas, but the Council let it slide? It's not like the Council were the only clique. The Revanchists formed in 3964 due to dissatisfaction with the way the Order was being run, and they were well known. Hazen, under Sith influence for more than 30 years, then engineered a coup that was joined by hundreds of Jedi loyal to the Covenant across the galaxy and led to the deaths of many Jedi on both sides. That's an awful lot to miss, but as we'll see, this council gets a lot worse. All right, last note 
from Vindication, Canon Alert 17, that's right, tucked away in the stray observations. Uh, as we said, some very good stories come out of the overall theme that the Jedi Order is largely incompetent. Uh, Vindication was one, and this alert comes from another, Claudia Gray's excellent uh, book that was released in either April or May, Master and Apprentice. Um, this is a very long prologue to tell you that according to a young Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Jedi Order is about 10,000 years old in canon. Now, given Kenobi's history with fudging things to fit his certain points of view, we don't know if he was just using a round number to indicate uh, that the Order is old or if he literally meant 10,000 years from the time he was speaking, which was around 40 BBY. Uh, 10,000 years on the nose seems real specific, but, you know, what do we know? Prior to this, indications put the age of the order at about 6,000 years, BBY, so it could be either or any time in between. This illustrates both the fluidity of the new canon and how quickly things are getting added or changed, depending on how you look at it. And... On to the fluidity of candy. We're going to talk about Knights of the Old Republic, a profit motive written by John Jackson Miller in 2008 and 2009, which is a two-issue arc. So whereas Vindication was big and sprawling and answered many questions about the series, profit motive, and I should specify here, it's profit as in the prophet Muhammad and not profit as in Wall Street Journal is concerned about profits. Um, profit motive is short, has an incredibly dubious premise, and is really only notable for the big reveal that occurs on the very last page. If it seems to go by quickly, that's because we didn't need to bring the or explain the intricacies of a fictional futures market any further. Ah, so it is profit in both senses. Ooh, they're boring IRL, and they're boring here. <laughs> and if you know it's too tedious for us, it's really, really tedious. Old characters Zane, Griff, Slisk, Jeriel, and Roland. Uh, new characters Nunk, Plarvin, a Chevin criminal and mid-level player in the RAF syndicate, which is a large criminal syndicate. He runs a shady futures market on Metalos 3, was formerly an associate of Griff in their younger days. Uh, the Chevin are a squat bipedal species with the with mouths at the end of long trunks, and they're from the planet Vinsoth. Uh, think of like shorter elephants with opposable thumbs, and yeah, they're, they have two legs instead of four, so they're not really long. Um, the Chevin long ago enslaved the humanoid Chev species, who also originated on Vinsoth. <clears throat> And Plarvin is no different, keeping numerous Chev slaves in his orbit at all times. There's also uh, Sipiter, uh, Plarvin's foremost slave, who leads the Futures Exchange as well, a capable, smart being who helps lead his fellow slaves by the end of the arc. Came up with the idea for the shady, for the shady Futures market in the first place. Uh, the Chev species are humanoids with all black eyes who originated on Vinsoth and have been enslaved by the Chev for years beyond reckoning. All right. For locations, we are not going to any place old, which is, you know, a novelty. And then for new locations, we are going to be on Metellus 3, a lifeless moon orbiting the planet Metellus in the Coruscant sector of the Core Worlds. Once held solely telescopic and recording devices, which someone later found could be used to discover, measure, and explore new astronomical bodies. 
dabbled the Republic, Metallus III created the first Planetary Futures Exchange, which allowed investors to bid on future resources and land rights to planet, moons, or any other type of celestial body. Since outer rim exploration is so expensive, the investors wanted to know their risks up front, and so they bid for rights based on the data provided by Metallus III. They do this even though the locations in question won't be available or in some cases even accessible for many years. Our timeline here is a 3963 BBY or one month after the events of Vindication. Our story on Metellus Three investors and their representatives gather to bid at one of the new Planetary Futures Exchanges, a Republic-backed initiative that allows investors to stake early claims to resource and land exploitation rights based on the astronomical data supplied by the advanced telemetry equipment situated on the moon. God, that sentence was way too long. (laughs) The equipment had been there and in use for quite some time, but became the source of big business after galactic exploration opened again following the Great Sith War. Investors, wary of costly exploration into the Outer Rim, wait for new heavenly bodies to be discovered and then bid on everything from property boundaries to mineral extraction permits to water rights. Some of the new objects are still years from being visited, but securing exclusive rights to minerals is always lucrative, so it pays off. Supposedly, all worlds that are bid on are unoccupied, but that seems unlikely. There's also some type of arbitration or grievance process, but again, that seems dubious. A Chevin na- named Sipiter, Sipiter, God, uh, explains all of this to Griff via a very long exposition. So it's the standard con we've all come to know and love. Griff takes on an alter ego with a play on his name, and he tries to grift some bad people out of their evil money, which is, again, what happens when you have a character named Griff. This time, he's an attorney, and he just so happens to be present when a disguised, disguised Jariel and her disguised bodyguard, Roland, enter with a grievance against the exchange. You see, the exchange sold a claim to a world named Italbos, and it was one of their biggest sales ever, but it was already inhabited by Roland's, quote, people. They don't like being called anyone's property, but now with Griff acting as Roland's attorney and brokering a new auction under some vague intergalactic law, they can resell the rights to Italbos. Also, surprisingly, Italbos is even richer in minerals than they had thought before, Jariel reports. Roland and his people will be happy to put the world up for sale as long as they get their fair share. So a new auction will commence the next day. I wish it were that easy to get admitted to practice law in other states here in America. They could just top sectors. I, I was annoyed about that for way too long. Uh, anyway, remember, friends, cultural appropriation is bad, but creating a culture out of whole cloth to ri- rip off a bunch of ultra-wealthy jerks is perfectly fine. Hell, it's probably even good. Unfortunately, the Chevin Act is a public front for the Planetary Futures Exchange and are enslaved by a despicable Chev named Nunk Plarvin. Even more unfortunate is the fact that Griff and Plarvin have known each other for many years, and the Chev easily saw through a trick Griff has used many times before, even in this comic alone. Now, don't get the impression that Plarvin is the brains behind the operation. He's not. 
His Chevin slave, Sipiter, is the one who came up with the idea and is far more intelligent than his cruel master. Sadly, the Galactic Republic turns a blind eye to this obvious cruelty. It was well known that the Chevin had subjugated the Chev thousands of years before 3963, yet Chev were still allowed to operate with Chevin slaves on a world in the same system as the Republic capital Coruscant. So yeah, the full brunt of society weighing against Sipiter and the rest of the Chevin. Nunk sends his security team to the suite that Griff, Jeriel, and Roland are staying in while they wait for Zane, who has been on vacation for a month since his good name was finally cleared on Coruscant. When Plarvin's thugs arrive, Jeriel and Roland put on an impressive display, and it's clear that the offshoot's training is paying off. However, the two fighters were eventually overwhelmed by Nunk's mercenaries and a number of security droids that came in through the floor. They almost get Griff, but he's saved at the last moment by a late-arriving Zane, sporting a new lightsaber with a blue blade. Unfortunately, Nunk's thugs had already kidnapped Jeriel and Roland before Zane intervened. Canon Alert 18. It's an extremely recent canon alert with a few different parts, one of which just happens to coincide with this arc. In the profit motive, Griff's alter ego was a law professor at the University of... Kadomai, an institute of higher learning based on Kadomai Prime in the Outer Rim. This is the one and only reference made to it in the whole of Legends. While the University of Kadomai was made canon by the most recent Star Wars novel, Alphabet Squadron, there's a specific reference and the book was only released in early June. Alpha Squadron also mentioned the world Talarath, which was created for the uh, Old Republic comics in the reunion arc. However, Talarath was canonized prior to Alphabet Squadron. It was pictured in the 2019 one-shot comic Age of Republic, Django Fett. Above Nunk's office, Plarvin and Sipiter lead Jrael and Roland to an abandoned solar observatory where they are chained together and hung from the filter near the ceiling. The lens has been altered so that anyone left inside when the sun rises above the observatory will be cooked alive. Then uh, Plarvin and Sipiter leave. You know, slow burn, slow burning death, giving the heroes time to escape, that sort of thing. As the sun begins to rise, Jeriel and Roland have minutes to live, if that. They could survive in the shade far below if they could get free of the chain, but it's been locked too well. With Zane and Griff unaware of their imminent demise, Jeriel and Roland are going to die if they don't think of something quick. The offshoot laments their lack of a Jedi who could easily free them with the Force. Uh, when the Mandalorian says that maybe the Force does not belong to the Jedi, that maybe the others can feel it too. Roland implores Jeriel to concentrate focus, and focus on the burning light. At this point, the sun is almost directly above the observatory. They have maybe a minute left at most. As the sun drowns both of them out, Roland tells Jeriel to be what she was meant to be. Outside, Zane and Griff overheard Plarvin's plan and went to confront him, but they need a plan because he's heavily guarded and the Raft Syndicate is bad news. They also need a plan to rescue their friends, and they don't seem to realize how time-sensitive the predicament is. Zane and Griff find Slisk working on their new starship, the Hot Prospect. The ship isn't the normal freighter, even fighting craft, though. It's a large gem mining vessel that looks like a flying oil rig. Despite Slisk being a nice guy and trying his hardest, he'd never bought a ship legally before, so when Griff sent him to buy a new one on course following vindication, the Trandoshan got ripped off easily. Poor Slisk. The trio decides the easiest way to con a stupid criminal is to prey on his ego and, well, general lack of intelligence. 
They know Parvin relies on his Chevin to do all of the thinking. And he's just the muscle and their owner, so he gets the credit for everything. The unsuspecting low-level crime boss is in his office discussing the new auction of Atalbos with Sipiter when Zane bur- bursts in, dispatching the security detail in the room and clearing the way for Griff and Slisk to make their entrance. Slisk is posing as an enforcer for the Raft Syndicate, and Griff acts as his handler. You might think they wouldn't fall for this after seeing through Griff's attempt to run the same kind of scam earlier, but the Raths only have a very limited number of species that serve as enforcers, and the Trandoshans are one. Slisk puts on a good performance as a snarling bounty hunter and slaver, scaring Nunk out of his wits by brandishing a knife and slapping Zane when he doesn't obey. The con also works because the Raft Syndicate is highly secretive, so it's uh, unheard of for them to work like this. They explain, oh, so it's not unheard of of them uh, to work like this. They explain that Plarvin screwed up a syndicate operation by seizing Roland and Jirael, who were there to get an even bigger share of the huge amount of credits being pulled in by the exchange. The Rafts know it's a lucrative operation and Plarvin has been holding out on them. Plarvin, now scared to death, confesses the whole market was was the idea of his chev slave Sipiter and asks for the chance to explain so the syndicate doesn't kill him. Griff tells Plarvin that the Raft Syndicate is expecting him to explain his actions alone and in person on their secret base on the Ice Moon Jebel. Nunk leaps at the chance because he wants to move up with the criminals and has never met them in person before. Plarvin leaves Sipiter and his fellow Chevin slaves in charge of the markets and departs. A tearful Sipiter bids goodbye to his cruel master and then confirms with Griff that Jebel was turned into a nuclear wasteland by the Mandalorians. The Snivian says that Sipiter knows the info about Jebel because he and the other slaves are the brains behind the operation. With Parvin gone, Slisk, Zane, and Griff ended the slavery of many Chevin on Metellos III. They helped the little guys who the Republican Jedi are obviously ignoring, and they got rid of slavery and of slavers in the process. Sure, they might be running a crooked futures market, but freeing slaves and leaving them with a way to keep making credit is a moral win, at least according to Griff. It's a good mission, except for Jeriel and Roland, who died in the observatory. Sipiter sadly reports that Zane and company's rescue was timed too late to save their friends who died when the sun rose above the observatory, which occurred just before the tree arrived at Plarvin's office. Zane is obviously a rape, but Jariel and Roland emerge from the observatory sweaty and overheated, but still very much alive. Before an explanation can be given, Roland gifts Zane the chains and locks that they had been bound with and tells Carrick that Jariel requires his teaching in the ways of the Force. Jariel wasn't aware she was Force-sensitive until the incident in the observatory, but Roland sure seemed to suspect it, implying that he was the one who killed E.G. Vom on the Arcanian legacy to keep the shocking information about Jariel's blood a secret during the Knights of Anger arc. Zane is shocked, Jariel is well also shocked, but the crew also need to move on. Before they left, Zane went to the exchange and told the investors the truth about Atalbos, that nothing had changed and it was just a way to scam them. Of course, it didn't matter because they were already dreaming about the riches invented by Griff, and so the market had already absorbed that excitement, causing the price to skyrocket. In orbit, the crew of the Hot Prospect admired their literal pile of credits, a token of thanks from the Chevin for all their help and a cut from the new auction of Atalbos. You thought we were immediately going to have a whole long discussion about Dryle's newly found force powers, force powers and what they mean? No. We're just going to leave it there like the comic does. Don't worry, though. Later arcs will have an explanation.
It's not like she just developed force sensitivity overnight or anything. Uh, Moving on to the next story, Knights of the Old Republic comic, uh, Faithful Execution, uh, is written by John Jackson Miller in 2009. It is a one-issue interlude. And uh, our old com- our old characters, excuse me, are Zane, Roland, LB, Slisk, and Jeriel. And our new characters are Toki Tolivar, a male Bim with auburn fur. Toki is an employee with the Republic's Ministry of Commerce and the last survivor on a ship that was attacked and left for dead in the Core Worlds. Has an assistant droid who named Ko who protects Toki no matter what. Bim are a diminutive bipedal mammalian species that resemble foxes and are less than half the height of an average human. All right, for our old locations, we will be um, on the Hot Prospect, and our new location is the uh, Chancellor Filorian, a luxury yacht that provides pleasure cruises between the core worlds to the elite. Many of these luxury liners are in use at this time because the core has been largely unaffected by the Mandalorian Wars raging in and around the Outer Rim. The Filorian is adrift and has been missing for more than a month. Our timeline is 3963 BBY, with brief flashbacks to unknown times during the past 30 years. The story. Zane is attempting to communicate with LB, their loading droid and friend who has remained silent and unmoving since Camper disappeared into hyperspace months ago. Carrick thought the news of the terrorists, of the deaths of the terrorist masters who LB hated so much would rouse the droid, but it did nothing. Roland and Griff both want to get rid of LB since he's doing nothing, since he doesn't do anything, but Zane isn't so sure. However, the the discussion was tabled when the group discovered the Chancellor of Valorian, a pleasure cruiser and yacht for the elite of the Core Worlds that has apparently been missing for some time. The crew board the ship and find all the crew and passengers have <clears throat> and find that all the crew and passengers have asphyxiated except for one being, a BIM named Toki Tolivar. Uh, the tiny Republic Commerce Minister says there was a commotion, but he remained in his compartment as instructed until he and his droid Ko emerged days later to find everyone dead. The crew restore functionality to the listing yacht and then begin moving the bodies. Ko is able to enlist the help of LB because they were built at the same manufacturing facility on Rendilly. The entire group is shocked to find Slisk has been attacked and is asphyxiating rapidly. Luckily, Roland and Zane think quickly and open up a new air hole in his throat with the help of a knife on the top of a bottle that Zane removed with his lightsaber. Uh, yeah, he did one of those cool cork, you know, bottle slash things with a lightsaber. It's, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, Slisk is stabilized by the uh, increasingly medically proficient Roland, but unfortunately all the courage he gained from standing up to Nunk Plarvin in the last arc is completely gone. He's just timid old Slisk again. After the bodies were collected, Roland finds the corpses have all been strangled to death, and everyone suspects Ko of being the murderer. I mean, the only other thing on the ship is the sides of a fox standing on its hind legs. Toki couldn't possibly choke a human to death, right? Zane goes after Ko, who's having a discussion with Albi about the ethics of helping a master commit immoral acts. Carrick shows up and immediately slices off Ko's hands, causing Albi to attack Zane and Roland in defense of his fellow droid. Kao then explains that he isn't the killer. His master, Toki, was a formerly a Sith adept who fought under Exarchon during the Great Sith War. 
Keo came into Tokyo's service not long after that war ended, but soon began finding dead bodies around his master's estate. The droid helped hide them to help Toki, and they were eventually run off Corellia because Toki killed too much, and they booked passage on the Chancellor Florian. It's obvious that Toki's serial killing weighs on Keo to a large degree, but the droid doesn't want to disobey his master. Zane and Roland rush back to where they left Jariel and Susk in an attempt to protect their friends from Tolivar. Meanwhile, Toki is force-choking Jariel and explaining that he has continued the legacy of Exar Kun and the Sith tradition of taking down the Republic, but he's doing it by killing one citizen at a time using force powers. It's a slow method. He is tired of everyone always overlooking him due to his small stature and wielding the dark side makes him feel like a big man. As Toki is about to snap Jariel's neck, he notices something inside her and is excited to kill it before being shot in the back by Zane. Toki was not done, however, because Zane didn't shoot to kill for whatever reason. The Bim, excited to challenge a Jedi for the first time in years, unleashed his red lightsaber and jumped across the room screaming, Ex-Zane. It was very reminiscent of Palpatine's 1080 spin from a prone position plus force scream in Revenge of the Sith. The two dueled briefly with Toki getting the upper hand by bringing metal lights down on Zane. Uh, prepared to kill his Jedi foe, Tolivar is interrupted by a handless KO who wraps both arms around his master before electrocuting him. Keo did this to prevent his master from harming anyone again. Roland finished the job by shooting Toki from point-blank range, killing the Sith, and sadly destroying Keo in the process. Roland then tells Zane if he fails to protect Jeriel again, uh, and he will be killed by the Mandalorian. Back on the hot prospect, Slisk is uh, recovering very well from his injuries, and Zane confides in LB. Carrick doesn't understand Roland, who seems like a completely different person uh, since the incident at Flashpoint. He walks, he talks and fights differently and is obviously obsessed with Jeriel in some unhealthy way. Jeriel herself is even more of a mystery. She said that Toki seemed personally offended by her presence, though she didn't know why and still has n- and she'll and still has no idea why or how her latent force powers came to surface finally zane admits he hasn't been candid with everyone about his vacation either lb doesn't say much but he likes zane and carrick is fine with it that way next up is our is knights of the old republic comic uh, dueling ambitions again by john jackson miller this in published in 2009 and it is a three issue arc Dueling Ambition starts out slowly, but then begins to shed light on a number of questions the series has left open for some time. We still know very little of Jariel's past, and we haven't revisited the history of the Arcanian offshoots in some time. Two big questions that begin getting answers in this arc. It's good, because there are nine issues left after Dueling Ambitions. Our old characters are Zane, Griff, Jariel, Roland, and Jervo, Thalion. Your new characters that include Bardron, a Chris representative of the franchise who runs many of the duels and other contests on Jervo's world. Chris are humanoid species with hair on the side and back of the head and a bony ridge running from the nose up between the eyes and the center of the head. And the franchise is an intergalactic entertainment company that held the exclusive rights to broadcast and merchandise swoop bike dueling gear at Jervo's world. They had an operation on Tarvis as well because of their close association with Lotion Industries and Jervothalion. While the public faces an entertainment venture, they have an agreement with the Crucible to provide slaves and muscle when the need arises. They won't hesitate to dispatch assassins or fix races to deal with pesky individuals. Then we've got Gothar Kleej, a, go- a Gotal and one of the best swoop duelists ever. 
tries to speak out against the oppression of his people and others who are enslaved by the franchise, but is beaten and forced into one last fight to save his son's life. Gatal have two small conical horns that act as electromagnetic sensors on the top of their heads, uh, but they have to learn how to control uh, the noise or it can cause them to have mental breakdowns even as children. Aubencleage, Gothar's young son who is also enslaved by the franchise. Aubin, or I'm sorry, by the Crucible. Aubin is placed into one of the dueling arenas to force his father to play by the rules, and he later befriends Zane. Growing up away from other Gatal means that Aubin never learned to control his horns, and the sound in his, in his head causes him constant migraines and nearly drives him mad on a daily basis. Uh, we've got Chantique, a pink-skinned, white-haired female Zeltron who was a slave and eventually becomes the master impressor of the Crucible, which means she she is in charge of capturing new slaves. She's a ruthless and efficient killer and has blue tattoos similar to Jirael. You also might vaguely remember that Jirael used Chantique as an alias on one of their earlier jobs. It's almost like the two of them have a past together. Uh, Zeltrons are a near-human species with skin tones that range from very deep red to almost neon pink and hair to match. They were considered some of the most beautiful beings in the galaxy, but also produce pheromones that seem to make them more attractive and empathetic. So uh, it seems like a cop-out to me. Uh, then we have the Crucible, a galaxy-wide slaving organization that has existed uh, since before the Golden Age of the Sith, so pre-5000 BBY. Uh, their mysterious past and shady dealings come up repeatedly in the series. All right. And our, we are not revisiting any old locations, but we are going to Jervo's world as a new location, a space station above the planet Pantoloman in the core worlds. The station was so large that it contained suites, gambling floors, and more than a dozen arenas. The main hub arena is by far the largest part of the station. It connects to each of 12 satellite hubs that contain separate biomes to spice up the duels. Partitions can be removed to open all satellite arenas in the hub for very large events. The most popular type of duel of dueling at Jervo's World is swoop dueling. And all this happens in 3963 before the Battle of Yavin. Our story uh, Griff has arranged some kind of scheme for the gang on Jervo's world, a very large space station orbiting Pentoloman. Uh, however, he didn't count on Zane being a huge swoop duel racing fanboy or that a lot of good beings would need a lot of help. Swoop dueling is a big sport that plays on the love that crowds have for big gladiatorial spectacles. The duelists fight it out against one another and the wilds of the arena to win credits, glory, and maybe some respect. The arenas are large fighting pits that could have dangers added or changed from a command hub. It's a lot like uh, the way the Hunger Games are set up with the changing arenas and corporate input. Uh, Jervo's world is so massive. Uh, it has 12 arenas situated on long, long arms jutting out from the main hub of the space station. And these arenas are large enough to allow for swoop by swoop bikes, flying beasts and warriors with jetpacks to jetpacks to engage in aerial combat. The duelists fight each other, the arena and other warriors to increase the spectacle. Swoop dueling is huge business for gambling and broadcast rights, but safety precautions were instituted to keep duelists from killing one another in order to get Republic approval for the events. Since Jervo's world orbits Pantoloman, which is in the core worlds, 
and thus part of the republic, certain concessions had to be made to appease the politicians. Of course, duelists are injured and killed during the dangerous events all the time. Wink, wink. The franchise, an intergalactic entertainment company, owns all rights to broadcast swoop duels on Jervo's world through an agreement with Losan Industries. The franchise also owns the marketing rights to many fighters in the arena, so the workers can't even make money off their own likeness. If it sounds a lot like college football in America, well, yeah. The entertainment venture has also been known to fix races or kill writers who speak out against their barbaric behind-the-scenes practices. To make matters far worse, many of the duelists are slaves provided to the franchise by the Crucible. More barbarous still, child slaves are forced to fight small aliens or other younglings in side matches that aren't publicized, but can still be bet on at Jervo's world. Slaves that aren't fit for arena dueling are sent back to the Crucible and are then auctioned off to grotesque deaths, working in mines, or sexual slavery. It's really bad. Such is the sad predicament facing Gothar Kleege, the greatest swoop duelist of all time. Just before Griff and friends arrive, Kleege secured his fourth straight swoop dueling title and is ready to give a speech as is the winner's right. Gothar, a male Gatal, denounces the franchise, the Crucible, and all the barbaric actions lying just under the surface of swoop dueling that we just enumerated. Unfortunately, the franchise expected this and plays a faked, generic retirement speech thanking the crowd and fans. The franchise's leader on the station, a Krish named uh, Bardron, has Kleege beaten and says the organization thought a stunt might be pulled, so they took some collateral. Bardron then produces a screen showing Gothar's young son, Aubin, in one of the arenas, scared for his life and hiding for safety. The Gatal is furious, but Bardron says the duelists were told to ignore the boy completely for this duel, but he's free game to anyone the next time. Desperate and bloody, uh, Gothar agrees to unretire and compete in the big swoop duel tandem open with his son in exchange for a chance to win freedom from slavery for both of them. The tandem open is the same as the other swoop duels, except it has teams of two. It's a big deal, apparently. Uh, When the hot prospect arrives, the crew is unaware of Gothar's plight or the seedier aspects of the whole swoop dueling league. Zane, in in an attempt to chase a boyhood dream of sports stardom, enters a swoop dueling league to try and win a a rare Gothar Kleege swoop bike. Carrot posts a good time in his run, but afterward attempts to comfort a scared and hiding Aubin, only to be accosted by Kleege. Zane has always admired Gothar since watching swoop races was his only outlet in the otherwise fairly miserable Jedi training on Terrace. Uh, But the Gothar doesn't care because, well, he's a slave and they've used his child as a hostage and he's trying to survive and win his freedom. Uh, Zane doesn't know any of that, but that's not the point. Uh, Gothar threatens Zane into protecting Aubin in the upcoming tandem swoop duel semifinal. Griff is losing members for his con. Fast, Zane is nowhere to be found and Jariel hasn't been... Betting the winners Griff is sending in because she noticed that they are children fighting small aliens for the amusement and some... Sorry, she noticed that there are uh, children fighting small aliens for amusement in some side rooms and recognizes it as, you know, some really bad news. Jariel is personally dealing with guilt over something she hasn't told the group and something she's especially worried Zane will hate her for. She thought she could run from it, but whatever the secret is keeps getting closer and Jariel is obviously unnerved. Meanwhile, Roland stuck his head out of the ship to check on things, and now he's being chased by security. Dyer finds Jariel and Griff, but is hauled down by three guards. Griff, always thinking on his feet, sees a chance to 
Changed the con quickly and says Roland is an arena duelist in a gimmick costume. You know, to drive the crowds wild with a villain, etc. It's a heel turn like wrestling or something. Anyway, Bodrin, Bodrin arrives and allows Roland to enter as Spikes because of the spiked shoulder Bodrin on the left side of his armor. Bodrin does require Roland's Mandalorian armor to be changed somewhat, however, with the spikes being filed down some and the colors being changed a little to show up better on the broadcasts. Still looks uh, pretty much the same, though. Later... Zane, Jariel, Roland, and Griff all meet up again to formulate an, a new and improved plan. Zane and Aubin are competing in one semifinal of the tam- <clears throat> Tandem Open, while Gothar and Roland are in the other. Carrick and the younger Cleach barely escape with their lives, but some fancy sl- swoop flying by Zane and a lot of luck allow them to avoid the flying beast, traps, and other competitors. Carrick eventually flies all of them into one another while he and Aubin land safely onto the ground while the other with the other competitors injured or dead, Zane and Lil Cleage head to the finals. Roland and Gothar, meanwhile, face stimper, stiffer competition in the other semifinal, but unsurprisingly make, make short work of it and in the end and both and both progress. The tandem open final is set. Zane and Aubin versus Gothar and Roland. Only one team can win. Uh, it was clear during the first duel, though, just how debilitating Aubin's condition is. He has trouble even shielding himself from danger, and Zane is barely able to keep them alive. To soothe their guilty conscience, Jariel swapped video of Gothar Cleage's real retirement speech, the one he spoke but no one heard because the franchise inserted a pre-recorded edited speech instead, and he plays it for Zane. She knows how much Zayn idolizes Cleeds and how much he would want to help. Immediately, the scales fall from Carrick's eyes and he can finally see the real drivers of unfeathered markets. Greed, dead bodies thrown into the machine or by the wayside, contracts of adhesion, economic and chattel slavery. As Gothar rails against the enslavement of thousands of beings by the franchise for the entertainment of the galaxy, and with the apparent blessing of the Galactic Republic, no less, Zane knows what they have to do. He leaves Jariel to confront Gothar about the speech and his predicament. Cleese the Elder says he was just trying to get a message out to find someone to help, but now that the franchise has threatened Albin, he must remain silent. Now Zane knows why Gothar made him protect Albin and a little more about Albin's condition. Gatal must be raised around others of their kind. Not out of some misplaced xenophobia, but because their conical horns are highly sensitive uh, electromagnetic receptors that can be used to sense emotional changes in other beings or their surroundings. Uh, but when a Gotal isn't taught how to hone the ability, the electromagnetic pulses are still received, but with no way to process them, the Gatal hears loud noises in their head or and, and sees or senses shadows that aren't there all the time. It drives many of them to insanity and suicide. Sadly for Aubin, his mother was killed by slavers when he was very little, so she could not help, and there were no other Gatal around to help Gothar teach his son. Worse yet, Gothar's Gothar's horns are false. His were taken as punishment by the crucible and as a reminder that he is their property. Uh, Gatal consider removal of their horns to be one of the greatest sins in their culture. Zane, though he is of little means, is always one to help where he can and heard something familiar in the description of Aubin's plight. The force, Carrick says, comes at him much as the electromagnetic impulses come at Aubin, from unseen places and in feelings that he can't shake. But in learning to control and manipulate the force, they realize that it's something that's that's always with you no matter what, just like your shadows. 
and just uh, just like your shadow and just like those shadows that Aubin sent us so often. Gothar doesn't think Zane's meditation techniques or words will help Aubin and won't risk his deal with Bardrin, even if he knows that the franchise will double-cross them. Uh, Roland wanders up at the end of their conversation and asks why Zane would teach Aubin about the Force but not Jeriel. But Carrick simply replied that it's because Aubin was open to receiving the tra- the training, while Jeriel definitely has not asked for any help. Elsewhere on the enormous space station, Jervothalian and Bardrin are going over the next days. Uh, are going over the next days and having a tense, rather tense conversation. Dalian is furious to discover that Zane, Jariel, and while mostly Griff are running around and has Bardrin order all members of the Hot Prospect thrown in jail unless they are dueling. Jervo is further enraged that Gothar has been allowed to compete again, especially after his last stunt. If the Republic or the company's investors find out that the franchise uses crucible slave labor to provide competitors, they would lose everything. But Bardrin, who has kept his cool the entire time, thought of everything and has prepared the arena with traps and other enemies that will make sure to kill Gothar, Zane, Roland, and Aubin. Bardrin and Jervo laugh, drink to their misery and the suffering of others, and select a sad musical selection for the arena's announcer and musician to use the next day. There's only a one small problem. Griff is listening the entire time and recorded their conversation. Wait, if father and the son are facing off on separate teams in the finals and uh, and Gothar believes Bardrin and the franchise offer more help than Zane and his ragtag crew, how is the gang going to save both the enslaved Gatals? Uh, that's where a competent, decent scheme comes into play. Okay, so the group is pretty bad at coming up with big plans to pull off their heist and big jobs, right? It's a standard joke that even the comics rely on at this point in the run. Sure, a couple of their plans have been more of the flaw, but you've got no choice variety, which can be excused given the life or death, life and death nature of these things. But if we're being honest, mo- most are just comically inept Rube Goldberg devices of increasing nonsense. It's usually a bug, not a feature. Uh, but a good, or, I'm sorry, it's usually a feature, not a bug, but a good scheme never hurt anyone either. So Griff, mastermind that he is, develops a plan that involves every member of the gang, and for once, it's actually a good plan. Technically, Griff didn't really have to make a plan for Zane or Roland, but he does have Roland on comm so he can communicate directly inside the battle, which is better than his normal, just hope for the best kind of stuff. Outside the arena, Griff has tasked LB with obtaining an escape compartment for Gothar and Aubin. LB blends in with other loader droids and takes an empty bin. Above ground, Jarael, wearing a costume and heavy makeup, cozies up to the the arena announcer and musician, then uses some sleight of hand to steal his data cube and leave a fake in its place, all without his knowledge. Jariel then gives the original data cube to an arena mascot wearing a Gothar Kleege costume, who just happens to be Griff. He has to blend in because Jervo ordered Bardrin to throw all Snivians on the space station in jail in order to avoid any of Griff's schemes. It seems they missed one. Inside the main arena, which serves as the crowning jewel in the center of Jervo's world, the duel is about to begin before a standing room only crowd. From a luxury box high above the action, Jervo and Bardrin look on. Thalion is still nervous, but Bardrin assures the Lotion Industries CEO that the four main duelists won't leave the arena alive due to all of his contingency plans. Every franchise duelist with a score to settle against Gothar has been invited to add more danger and excitement to the fight. 
There's a pair of sisters firing live shots while riding on the backs of flying creatures that look like fell beasts, you know, the Nazgul's mounts from Lord of the Rings. There's a Thailand night sorer with venomous claws and the green giant riding a gold speeder. Not the type of green giant who would sell you frozen vegetables at the grocery store either. If you aren't feeling the Hunger Games, Fortnite, Player Unknown Battlegrounds, or the Musical Chairs Battle Royale as vibes yet, then we're not doing a good job of telling it. As both Nazgul Felbeast rise, the duel begins, but Gothar still believes Bardrin might honor his earlier deal and that Gothar might win freedom for both he and his son by defeating the franchise's assembled ringers, Carrick and Roland. While protecting his son Aubin from danger at all times, Gothar Cleage is a brave, desperate man and an honorable father, but accomplishing all that seems impossible in the first place, and even if Bodrin decided to keep his word, Jervothalion would certainly have him killed. Big business is bad, even in fiction. While the smaller satellite arenas each has one biome, the hub arena in the center connects to each, and the walls between all 12 satellite arenas have been lowered to allow for more action. On an asteroid pocked moon-like surface, the, t- the Tylun Nightsaur leads Roland into a trap where one of the two sisters uh, wrapped, wrapped the Mandalorian with innervation coils, knocking him out of the sky. Their safety wristbands should have deactivated the coils, but they didn't, which is the first indication that this game is fixed. Gothar and Aubin Kleej uh, speed by on a swoop bike with the accelerator uh, uh, speed by on a swoop bike with the uh, sorry Gothar and Aubin Kleej speeding by on a swoop bike with the accelerator floored and the brake line was the second indication. They should have assumed going in, but that's neither here nor there. As they enter a swamp arena, Zane catches up and offers to take Aubin on his swoop bike, but just as the exchange occurs, that unfriendly non-grocery store green giant cut between them on his equally giant golden speeder. Zane, Gothar, and Aubin are all all thrown from their swoops into the muck, while the mean green giant stalks his prey. Zane came to looking to protect Aubin and even got the jump on Big Green, but the franchise rigged his blaster, so a long stick will have to do. Just like when we were kids and we'd use cool lightsabers as sticks. Carrick, Zane's going to do the same thing. Carrick, ever the hero, gets the Green Giant's attention just as he was about to crush Aubin. For saving the life of a defenseless boy and because no good deed ever goes unpunished, Zane gets kicked in the chest by a giant green webbed foot as he's jumping with his big cool stick. Curiously, though, Aubin, Aubin has stopped cowering and is standing to protect Zane as best he can. We haven't seen the boy... Uh, able to do much more than cower, but Zane's lessons in the force bore fruit at the right time, along with Aubin's fight-or-flight response. Protecting Zane, Aubin yells for his dad, the first words we've seen him speak. Gothar, arriving at the right moment, protects his son and Carrick by beating the not-so-jolly green giant to death with his bare hands. And that's one of the, my the favorite things I've ever written in my life. <laughs> It's an incredible sentence. Gothar pleads after seeing the franchise won't keep their word and that Zane helped his son in a real way, finally decides to team up with Carrick and with the the two hatching an escape plan on the fly. All of this is unknown to Roland, who is again doing stunning aerial battle with the two sister flying Nazgul Felbeasts. However, Roland is more clever than he normally lets on and he causes the sisters to shoot one another with innervation coils, taking them both out of the fight in the hub arena. 
That leaves only the Thailand Night Soar, which kind of looks like, you know, it doesn't matter because Gothar and Zane get the idea to fly Cleta Swoop with no brakes into a weak spot of glass in the hub arena, creating a riot. Sadly for the flying thing from Tyloon, he got pinned in the end of Gothar's swoop as it's flown directly into the glass and then the wall, causing a large explosion. The resulting commotion allows Zane to sneak Gothar and Abin off the station in LB's stolen bin. In the uproar, the franchise tries to make it seem like this is part of the show, and the musician is told to play something. Fumbling for his data cube, he finds the one Jariel planted earlier, which dutifully broadcasts Gothar Cleeds' real retirement speech to the whole arena. Cleeds pleads for help to shocked masses who don't know of the struggle, but it's worse than that, at least for Jervo. Griff recorded his little chat with Bardron and added a few of the juicier quotes about slavery and fixing duels to the end of Gothar's speech. As Jervo is pelted with fruits and vegetables, Bardron pretends like it's all part of the show and crowns Roland the winner because he never left the arena. On the Republic world of Pantalomen below, Zane helps Gothar and Aubin escape their getaway dumpster, and Roland admires the Gothar special swoop bike he received for winning the tandem duel. Griff says the franchise isn't done yet because they were able to cut the feed before it, it went to the entire galaxy, but everyone in the arena heard. More importantly, the Cleage family is free of their grip and can go help others and spread their story. So everything wrapped up nicely for our four heroes, huh? Uh, that is until Jeriel happens to exit the hot prospect and Gothar sees the stark blue tattoos on her uh, cheeks. Cleech fi- flies into a rage, shoving the Arcanian offshoot and storming off. Gothar says that if Carrick knew the truth about Jeriel, he wouldn't be anywhere near her, near her or that he's been lying this whole time. Jeriel is distraught and retreats within the large ship, but is chased by Zane, who's just confused about the whole thing. Finally, Jeriel says she's tired from running from her past, but that she can't that she can't run any longer, and then tells Zane she was once a slaver and closes the door. Back on Jervo's world, Dalian still believes he's calling his shots and tries to stop the franchise's relationships with the Crucible, but is instead assassinated. The femme fatale Chantique has neon pink skin and blue tattoos called Flames of the Crucible, just like Jeriel. Chantique is an enforcer for the Crucible and will wait with Bardrin for Lassan to send another money man in Gervo's place. In the meantime, she plots a means to catch and kill Jeriel and her friends. And with that, that concludes today's installment of A People's History of the Old Republic. Thank you all for listening. Next time, we will finally learn how Revan got that mask and name and prepare for the stunning conclusion of the Knights of the Old Republic comics. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help show... Help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.